So I'm glad uh, to have been invited to preach this morning as you all enter a year in which you are focused on the sacred work of advocating for children. I believe that when Christians reflect on what it means to advocate for children, we ought not only be thinking about how working for social, political, and economic transformation in cities like St. Louis, where black children are born into inequity, um, ought to be our goal. That's not the only thing we ought to think about. To be sure, these areas of transformation are vital to faithful Christian witness, as I think Scripture clearly shows that following Jesus requires challenging oppressive and repressive powers. However, in addition to challenging and transforming these structures, advocating for children means reflecting on Christian discipleship and addressing the terrifying question, what does it mean to raise a Christian child? On Friday, January 18th in Washington, D.C., thousands gathered for an indigenous people's march. The purpose of the march was to maintain and build on social and political momentum gathered during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests of 2016 and 17. Rarely does our nation give meaningful attention to the lived realities of American Indians, the original inhabitants of the land that has become the United States. And so American Indian activists, recognizing that their people should make good use of rare media attention, plan this march to continue to make their voices heard and their lives and bodies visible. Near the end of the march, a group of American Indians came face to face with a collective of students, which is to say kids, children, from Covington Catholic High School in Northern Kentucky. A video that has since gone viral shows one of the Covington students, Nick Sandman, standing eye to eye with Nathan Phillips, a Native American elder. In the media firestorm that followed, Sandman released statements and gave interviews explaining his young perspective. As this white high school student, this child, saw it, his stance face to face with a Native American elder was an attempt to show that, quote, I was not going to become angry, intimidated, or be provoked into a larger confrontation, end quote. Furthermore, and we should pay particular attention to this, Sandman explained his actions with appeals to Christian faith, adding, quote, I am a faithful Christian and practicing Catholic, and I always try to live up to the ideals my faith teaches me to remain respectful of others and to take no action that would lead to conflict or violence. Where did young Nicholas, this child, learn that this is what Christianity looks like in public? And what are we teaching our children about what it means to follow Christ in this life in this country, in this society, and on this earth. We find variations of this morning's passage in Matthew 19, 16 through 30, and Luke 18, 18 through 30. But this morning, we're in the Gospel of Mark, a book that, according to biblical scholar Brian Blount, quote, shatters the, institutional, shatters the institution's laws and codes that structure religious and political society in first century Palestine. 
Another biblical scholar, Chet Myers, reads Mark as an inherently anti-imperial text and adds, quote, to fail to come to terms with empire is to have to cling more and more desperately to illusions about our culture. In other words, the Gospel of Mark is an inherently anti-imperial text. It challenges those of us committed to the values of empire to remember that Christ stood in opposition to and was ultimately executed by the values of empire. Yet young Nick Sandman understood himself to be standing squarely in the tradition of Jesus when he faced off with Nathan Phillips and other American Indian elders wearing a Make America Great Again hat. Nick is in high school, which means that he and his classmates are approaching the period in which they will inherit the social, economic, and political privilege reserved for young white men of his ilk. As he and his classmates prepare to receive their American, their white American inheritance, Nick believes that he is developing into an upstanding Christian. He has no idea that when the gospel of Jesus is actually encountered, the good news, as we see in this morning's passage of scripture, is often experienced as bad news. Allow me to explain what I mean by this in three points, because I am a Baptist after all. The first reason the good news is often bad news is this. Receiving the good news of Jesus means questioning our own goodness. Receiving the good news of Jesus means questioning our own goodness. Ched Myers, who I've already mentioned, uh, has written a classic commentary on the Gospel of Mark. And he notes that the posture of this man, this rich man, closely emulates that of a leper who came and knelt before Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. While we do not learn that this man has many position, possessions until verse 22, here in verse 17, it is apparent that he has encountered the spiritual and the existential limits of his material possessions. Despite being rich, this man finds himself kneeling before Jesus like a leper. We all know that the rich rarely kneel to those who are their social and economic juniors. Instead, the rich typically look down on those who have less, urging them to reach for their, butch, for their bootstraps and to pull with all their might. The fact that this man is kneeling before Jesus, who was impoverished and possessed almost nothing in the way of earthly goods, evidences how desperate he has become. This man wants something from Jesus. He has so much of what the world has to offer, yet he lacks something. And what he lacks, he desires so greatly that he finds himself kneeling before a ragged and poor rabbi. He is not asking about stock options or investment strategies, but about eternal life. The Spirit of God has spoken to this rich man and has clarified to him that he cannot buy his way into heaven. He cannot clout his way to eternal life. He cannot purchase the peace which surpasses all understanding. Perhaps using some of the sly flattery that has helped him become rich in the first place, the man addresses Jesus not only as teacher, but as good teacher. The ragged rabbi seizes this, this greeting as an opportunity to teach this man that neither his money and clout 
nor his charisma will save him. Jesus uses the rich man's attempt at flattery to redirect the moral nature of the conversation. He does so by asking the man, why do you call me good? Continuing, he says, no one is good but God alone. Jesus' response is not an example of the vain ways we often pretend to be humble. Instead, he questions this man's understanding of goodness as a way of teaching him what is necessary to inherit eternal life. The emphasis in Jesus' response is not on the word me, but on the words good and God. This man has come seeking eternal life, and here in verse 18, Jesus teaches him and us that that inheriting eternal life requires questioning our own understandings of goodness. Why do you call me good, Jesus says. In other words, Jesus asked the rich man, why do you think you understand goodness well enough to label me as you have? After all, if this man understands goodness as well as he pretends, why is he kneeling before this homeless rabbi seeking eternal life? Jesus wants this man and all of us to have eternal life. But receiving this free gift of God requires questioning our own goodness. And Jesus leads the way in this by refusing to label even himself as good. This refusal echoes the poetic passage from the second chapter of Philippians. You all know this, where we learn that Christ, quote, who thought who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself, Philippians goes on, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the way to which Jesus invites us. Moreover, if this man understands goodness as well as his worldly as well as well as his words imply, then he may also think he understands evil. Right? You understand good. You understand evil. The German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, and I'm paraphrasing here, he wrote that the aim of Christian ethics, this is at the, the first and second sentences of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's ethics. Jewel might know this. <laughs> the aim of Christian ethics, Bonhoeffer wrote is to invalidate humanity's knowledge of good and evil. The aim of Christian ethics is to take what we think we know about good and evil and render it invalid in light of God's sovereignty. Bonhoeffer had studied the gospel well. He had also witnessed the horror of Nazi Germany and what human beings have the capacity to justify when they believe that they are the ultimate litmus test for good and evil. Jesus' first step, then, in teaching this man about eternal life is to teach him to question his own notions of goodness. How might Nick Sandman's actions have been different if he had been raised with a richer understanding of Christian faith? And what does the work of child advocacy look like 
If we begin by questioning our own notions of which families and children are good and deserving enough for access to quality schools, health care, and work with a living wage, Jesus invites the rich man and us to question what we think we know about goodness. The second reason the good news is often bad news is that while the love of Christ is free, actually following Jesus is extremely costly. While the love of Christ is free, actually following Jesus is extremely costly. After Jesus challenges the rich man's understanding of goodness, he continues to teach him what is required in order to inherit eternal life by teaching about the cost of following Christ. In verse 19, Jesus reminds the man about the commandments, specifically naming those dealing with murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, defrauding, and honoring parents. Because, as we saw in verses 17 and 18, the man trusts too much in his own understanding of goodness. He quickly responds, saying, Teacher, notice how he steers clear of good teacher this time around. I have kept all these since my youth. The rich man's response reflects a wrong-headed way of thinking that is pervasive in our culture. He thinks he can be rich in a world where people die because they are poor and still claim to have kept all of the commandments. He thinks that he can be rich in a world where people die because they are poor and still claim to have kept all of the commandments. He does not see a connection between his wealth and those whose lives are ravaged by the same legal and social structures that have made him rich in the first place. The rich man is like the middle class and wealthy whites who ward off social and historical claims of undue privilege by saying things like, I never owned slaves. I think Michael Brown's death was just so tragic. Or, it really is a shame that the city we live in is so segregated and unequal. Like the rich man, people who speak this way have yet to truly understand what Martin Luther King Jr. meant when he said, all of humanity is caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. Like the young Nick Sandman, this man, the rich man sees no problem with the nature of his existence. His hands are clean as far as he is concerned. He cannot be held responsible for the complex, interrelated nature of social and historical realities. Sandman believes that just because he was wearing a Make America Great Again hat as he stood before peoples whose lands, lifestyles, cultures, languages, and families have been stolen and destroyed by the type of violent politics that the hat represents does not mean that he's being disrespectful or immoral. 
Like the rich man, Samson believes he kept all the commandments in his encounter with the indigenous people's march. Both Nick and the rich man are simply living out the ideals of their faith. But is theirs the faith of Jesus? In verse 21, Jesus responds, and here we get to the heart of our second point, which is that while the love of Christ is free, following Christ is costly, the text says that Jesus looked at the rich man, loved him, and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. I want you all to know that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves all of us. And this love is free. It's a free gift rooted in the very nature of God. But just because Jesus loves us doesn't mean that we are doing what is required to follow Christ. Verse 21 makes this clear. The man is not allowed to follow Jesus as he develops a plan to devote himself more fully to the poor. No. Selling his possessions and giving the proceeds to the poor is not something he does as he follows Jesus. It is something he must do before he can become a follower. The love of Christ is free, you see. But actually following Jesus is extremely costly. Finally, and then I'll take my seat and thank you all for your time and patience. The third reason the good news is often bad news is that after we've questioned our understanding of goodness and after we've realized that while the love of Christ is free, actually following Jesus is costly, we must learn that Jesus will not stop us from walking away. And this is hard. Jesus will not stop us from walking away. Verses 22 and 23 recount the man's response to Jesus and Jesus' lesson to his followers. The man was shocked when he learned the true cost of following Christ. And scripture says he went away grieving because he had so many possessions. Whether it was the thought of how much work would be required to sell all that he had, or the thought of how much uh, or the thought of parting ways with all of his stuff, after learning what is required to follow Jesus, the rich man decides to walk away. Jesus does not send him away. The man is not banished. Rather, he chooses to walk away. And the Lord does not stop him. Because the rich man, like young Nick Sandman, had never learned the difference between his understanding of goodness and that of God's, and because he never truly understood the cost of following Christ, he walks away, shocked at the answer to his inquiry regarding eternal life. Eternal life is a free gift, but it is one that costs us much by the world's standards. Many of us never learn what is truly required to follow Christ. We so often confuse charity with solidarity, and we struggle to distinguish between moderate progressive reform 
and the radical values of God's kingdom. But friends, as you set out into this year of child advocacy, I have a different hope. And I wonder, have you all here at University United Methodist Church, this beautiful sanctuary, this warm, welcoming congregation, have you all adequately questioned your own understandings of goodness? Have you measured the true cost of following Christ in your endeavors? particularly in your goal to advocate for all children? And if you have, when it comes time to make the sacrifices necessary to transform St. Louis into a place where all of God's children, including those of a dark hue, will you actually pay the price so that all of these children have a chance to learn what it means and looks like to follow Jesus? As you set out on this work, remember Nick Sandman and the rich man. And remember your own children. If we do not make sacrifices necessary to follow Christ, what will our children think it means to be Christians? It is my hope and my prayer that we trust in God's goodness. That we trust in God's goodness. That we pay the price to make sure that all children, all children, have access to the things that they need. So that when our children remember us, they have a clear and faithful sense of what it means to not walk away from God. May God bless you in your work, and I thank you for your time. Amen.